If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Sophia, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every time, and this was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 186 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for a truly classic episode. What's that? There's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. Car 54, where are you? A little bridge version. I didn't want to subject you to me singing the full theme song to Car 54, Where Are You? But we have a special guest today, Hank Garrett, the surviving member of that classic sitcom, Car 54, Where Are You? is with us. Hank Garrett, legendary actor, wrestler, speaker, author of his memoir, Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. We're talking about his book, his life, Car 54, that time he broke Robert Redford's nose. Oh, so many stories await you. And that's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to remind everyone of episode 184, basically my love letter to the Sharknado franchise, an amazing interview with screenwriter Thunder Levin, who wrote Sharknado 1, 2, three, and four. Definitely check that out. If you need some TV binge watching suggestions, check out the bonus episode featuring segments from Crossing the Streams. So much, so much. All right, let's go back in time with this classic sitcom actor, Hank Garrett. He's got a handful of amazing inspirational stories, and I can't wait for you to hear them. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my next guest, actor, comedian, wrestler, power builder, karate, hall of famer, author, loved him in Three Days of the Condor, Serpico, Max Headroom, Columbo, Car 54, Where Are You?, and a million other things, author of the book, Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight, welcome to the show, Hank Garrett, welcome. (laughs) Thank you, thank you for having me on your show. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on the show. There's uh, there's so much to talk about. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> it's always good to talk to someone with so much rich history. I just I can't wait. The, the thing I found most interesting about all your stories is they kind of all overlap a little bit, like the wrestling, the karate. The, what's the hoodlum part? I know growing up in Harlem and, and some of those issues. And then we can pivot at some point to the renaissance of, of you as a comedian and an actor. I know it kind of all starts with the, the hoodlum phase. Yeah. My folks were immigrants from Ukraine. They came to the United States and they became vegetable peddlers, a push cart. I was born very late in life to them. My mom was in her 40s and my dad was in his early 50s. And because they were pushcart peddlers, they had very little time for home. I lived on the street. In fact, I, I actually slept in cardboard boxes on the street because my, mo- my folks were spending 15, 16 hours a day just trying to make enough money to live. So I was on my own, always in trouble. And in fact, I became a hoodlum. I hung out on the street. I had a 25 caliber pistol when I was 12 and always fighting. 
I got my nose broken at the age of nine. Gang member came over and punched me in the face. I was standing in front of my building. I never forgot him. I, I, in fact, I met up with him later on in life. The street became my mother and my father, became my family. And there were other kids pretty much in the same fix that I was in. There was a gentleman who was my mother's customer, and he was the mayor of Harlem. And my mother was crying to him that I was always in trouble, uh, and it was. And so he came to see me. I was standing on a street corner with my fellow hoodlums uh, smoking at 12. And he said, uh, your mother wants me to take you out. And I thought, my mother's putting a hit on me? No, dummy. He said, We're gonna t- I'm going to take you out tonight. Do you have a suit? I said, yeah, I've got a suit. He said, well... Before you put that suit on, man, take a bath. Well, I did. And I met him. He took me to the Apollo Theater and in Harlem, 125th Street. He took me to meet Sammy Davis Jr. He didn't take me to see his show. He took me into his dressing room. And he said, Sam, this is the kid I was telling you about. And Sam said, uh, Sam. I, I sat and he said, tough guy, huh? I said, yeah, I'm tough. He said, well, tough guys usually wind up with broken bones and scars. But you're man, uh, you know, man, you're way behind them, beyond that shit. You're going to wind up going to prison or you're going to die. And I thought, that's it? He said, yeah, the way you're going, that's it. As he started talking to me about what's going to happen to me, that gun was getting heavier and heavier in my pocket. I thought it was going to tear through. Well, he wound up getting me a job with an all-black orchestra. And he said, you're going to be a band boy. And I said, I, I don't play an instrument. He said, no, no. You're going to put the music out from the different musicians. And at the end of the gig, the end of the job, you put everything back together and put it in this case. I did. And at the end of the evening, band was Lucky Millinder. Lucky came over and he said, you did a good job. And he gave me $50, 50 bucks. He said, get yourself some new kicks shoes. My shoes were torn to shreds. Uh, in fact, the left shoe was being held on. The sole was held on by a big rubber band. I took that 50. I ran to Floorsheim Shoes, and I bought a pair for $15. And I gave my mother 35 more money than she had seen all year. And that was the thought. Sammy Davis then got me a couple of gigs up in the Catskill Mountains. He said, I want you to watch the other comics. He said, because they told me you're pretty funny. I said, well, I was funny entertaining when I was being ready to be jumped by, by another gang. And I watched Buddy Hackett, people of that caliber. And 20 uh, some odd years later, I was at the Sands. I was opening for Tony Bennett. I was Tony Bennett's opening act for four years. That's amazing. Uh, and in the audience, ringside, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford. And when I got through with my show, Frank gave me a standing ovation. And when Frank stands up, the world stands up. That must have been loud and long. Oh, it was amazing. Amazing. And everybody ran back to see Tony, except Sam. Sam came over and said, where do I know you from? You're a funny cat. But where do I know you from? You look so familiar. I said, Sam, I'm the kid you said was going to go to prison or die. The two of us cried and hugged. And uh, boy. And it's been, thank God, uphill since then. But I never forgot those those days. It's amazing. And it's like, it's so touching. It just kind of just shows like how much impact you can have on someone's life and just change. I mean, 
I try to do the same thing now. In fact, we have a thing, well, we're starting a thing called Hangsters Kids, a place for kids to come to, to hang out, get off the street, get off the street, come to me, come to Hangsters Kids. Oh, <laughs> so it's amazing. I saw on your website, the letters that people write back to you to, yeah. it must be so fulfilling to, to be able to do for so many kids what Sammy Davis Jr. did for you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because of the Anna Marie, my manager, she has set up where I actually go to prisons and I talk to kids that are incarcerated. I'm talking about children, 11, 11 to 17 that are getting ready to go to prison or go to trial. And we speak to them. Don't talk down. I just talk to them. And I let them know where you are. I was. I sat right there. Anything that's gone through your head now went through my head then. Where am I going? How long am I going to be gone? Am I going to survive? Am I going to go to some prison and die, get killed? All this ran through my head, and it's all, all that ran through their heads. And I got letters from the kids. And one of the letters, particularly outstanding, said, Mr. Garrett, Sammy Davis Jr. was your angel. Because I talk about God sending me an angel. And I tell them, there's an angel out there for you. But you've got to be able to listen. Listen with your ears and listen with your heart. And they wrote and said, Mr. Garrett, Sammy Davis Jr. was your angel. You're our angel. And I've never forgotten that. That's so amazing, Hank. It really is. It's touching. It's so, so touching. It, it's special when someone like you also takes the time and recognizes that and, and gives back so much. It's so special. I have learned, in fact, Deanna Marie and I have written a book about my life. And whatever we sell, proceeds go to disabled American veterans. So far, we've raised over 60000 or disabled vets. That's incredible. It's something that, that I just have to do. I am so grateful for all the, the wonderful things that have happened in my life, like meeting the Anna Marie. <laughs> Always angels coming in, and you just have to open your open your heart and arms to them, right? Exactly. And recognizing. That's uh, it's incredible. And it, when you said that you wrote the book, we're talking about the, the Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight book, yes? Yes. So anyone that wants to help support can find that book on Amazon or any anywhere books are sold. And I never know what's happening with Amazon. So what we do is if they contact, the people contact, we can get an autographed copy, www.harlemhoodlum.com. Excellent. I'll put a note to that in the show notes as well so people can get to that real easy. Awesome. So Hank, being a stand-up comic myself, um, I'm interested in these Catskill years and, and, the, and the whole kind of becoming a comedian like it sounds to me like from what you said in the story about sammy davis that you they use that that uh that jewish humor to kind of as a more of a self-defense mechanism and to kind of calm the areas when people when things could get rough there's that natural intent that natural instinct of funny that kind of runs in the yes how did you pivot that to kind of like a a routine and you know, and being in front of people and, and kind of developing that voice. Listening to radio and hearing, there was a show called Can You Top This? And there were several performers telling jokes. And I would remember a good portion of the funny jokes. I started performing on the street. I did it as 
a savings because there were times that I was going to get beat up by a gang. And so I started telling jokes. I would start telling jokes about the neighborhood. And it, it saved me from a couple of beatings, even though I was a tough guy. I remember, well, Sammy Davis sent me up to the Catskills and I watched some of the wonderful, wonderful performers. And I borrowed a joke or two. <laughs> and then I started writing my own material. Uh, and wow, started. And when you start getting the laughs, one of the jokes which I told, and it's, it's been used by a zillion people, but it was, it was based on truth. And my father driving along and my mother called him and she said, Sam, please be careful driving on the 405. I heard that there's a car going in the wrong direction. And he said, one car? There are hundreds of cars going in the wrong direction. <laughs> and all the jokes I do is about family, about my ex-wife, my kids, and people identify. That is amazing. So I yeah, I had Robert Klein on not too long ago, and he was talking all about the cat skills. And it's just fascinating to me. Have you ever seen The Marvelous Miss Maisel? No, I haven't. Oh, I just got a word. Yes, I have. <laughs> We're just in. <laughs> my wife says, I have seen The Marvelous Miss Maisel. A little voice in my head said, yes, you have. <laughs> I was, I think, second season, I think they had a bunch of episodes in the Catskills. I've always been, I try to find someone who's been there like yourself to find out how accurate those were. Dirty Dancing was obviously in the Catskills as well during that time. If you can't recall, that's fine. You may have only seen a couple episodes, so... I was just curious. Sorry to take a quick break from this amazing conversation with Hank Garrett. I will continue to look for someone who is at the Catskills who can corroborate Mrs. Maisel for me. Anyway, want to take a moment. Thank you for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And we're back with Hank Garrett. I'm about to dive into some more comedians he was fortunate to see while at the Catskills. And we're back. What other comedians? Because uh, I, I read in the book, you know, you know, like Sid Caesar. There was like a bunch of other. You must have been up there in like some of the heyday. So there are probably some big names, singers or comedians that were coming through. I snuck in to watch Sid Caesar's show. He had a television show. And I snuck into the theater. I went across the roof, down fire escape to watch the rehearsal. Now, I sat up in the last seat in the balcony, and there was Sid Caesar rehearsing his show, his television show, which was incredible. And I was such a big fan of the greatest comedian I ever saw in my life. And I laughed out loud at one of the things he did, and he stopped and said, who's up there? I stood up, and he said, come on down. I came down. I thought they're going to have me either arrested or thrown out of the theater. He said, sit here. I said, okay. And I, I sat there and he said, you only laugh when I say something funny. Forget the rest of the cast. <laughs> so I sat there and he said, after the show, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm a big fan of yours. And one day I, I want to be a comedian. He said, do you do gibberish at all? And I said, I don't know what you're saying. And then he started doing an accent gibberish no real words and i learned to do gibberish with sid and we would have conversations gibberish conversation for example he would say all right two italians meet on the street 
And he would respond. And we would walk down the street having contact, well, conversations in gibberish, Japanese, Italian, whatever he selected. And it became an important part of my act. I wound up in London at the David Frost show. That was the week that was. And I would do gibberish every week. And then David would translate what I was saying. That's amazing. He had me running through the audience with a huge bag, and I was a Chinese delivery man. Yeah, an act that would not go over today. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like that now. But it's so funny. I mean, if you're going to learn gibberish from someone, Sid Caesar is the guy to learn it from. There is no greater master. He was the master. Oh, was he ever. So many stories. Not a great story, but I mean because it was a car accident, but how you met Jerry Lewis, ultimately. But uh, that was an interesting antidote. Did you know Jerry Lewis at the Catskills? Because he was a Catskills comedian. Uh, he was up at the Catskills long before I did, I got there. Uh, his dad was an, a master of ceremonies at one of, the, one of the hotels. And he started doing an act with his dad, Danny, Danny Lewis. And Jerry was at his side. Do making faces, and then he started doing pieces. And that's how Jerry started up in the Catskills. Oh, you know what? I think I heard that story recently in a documentary. It was a uh, comedy goes to school. It was a Catskills documentary. It was something like a a light bulb exploded, and he said something amazing, (laughs) right? And then then he got this laugh, and it it just was that moment. Yes. The interesting thing about every one of your stories, Hank, is that you always manage to turn uh, lemons into lemonade. Like whatever happened, you one upped, you leveled up from that. Uh, Sammy came to you, boom. You meet Sid, he gives you this, it becomes part of your act. Get this opportunity as a as a band boy, pivot that to to comedy. It's just an interesting. Like you always you're always moving forward. So that's the crash that you talk about in the in the book where they didn't even think you were going to live. That was just. That's like one of my greatest fears because I was just reading something about there's a, a turn in California where people go straight and it just drops right off and they find like the people like, you know, because nobody ever put up a banner, like dropping all of a sudden in a car 40 feet. That must have been, was that like this? That had to have been the scariest thing ever. Or did you even realize it was happening or it was just like next thing you're hanging from a tree? We, I had fallen asleep. My friend was driving and he also fell asleep. We hit the divider onto the oncoming traffic, and he pulled over to what looked like a level side. We just saw grass, but there was an opening that you could not see from the road. And we went, and we dropped 40 feet. We hit, and I was catapulted right out of it. I wound up wrapped around a tree backwards. He, he was killed. I won't go into description. I was at the height of my wrestling career. Aside from being a comic, I was also wrestling professional. In fact, I was being groomed to go for the championship, wrestling championship, which meant that the proceeds would be so much greater. Well, I woke up in the hospital and I heard two interns and one said, if he, if he lives, he'll never be walk again, which point I want to throw myself out of a window. And I was in a body cast for eight and a half months. I won't go into the description, but a lot of things were broken and 
really messed up. My cousin, who was a nutritionist, came to see me. And the next day, he bought this huge box of supplements. And he and it labeled everything, how much to take, when to take it. And they were going to have him arrested. They said he was practicing medicine without a license. He said, I'm a nutritionist. And he said, but you're not an MD. He says, well, these are not medications. They're food supplements. They confiscated the entire box. Well, he came back the next day with a, a box even bigger. And he said, this is all chocolates on top. The supplements are on the bottom. I want you to do not touch any of that candy. You give that to the nurses. I followed everything to a T. I was doing exercises, taking the supplements. The nurses kept flocking to my room for the candy. Well, I was able to walk out of the hospital, and everybody's patting themselves on the back, thinking they performed this miracle. And all the nurses had put on weight, and they had big zits all over their faces. Uh, and they kept coming by and, hey, can I take some of this candy home? Of course. Every day, or every few days, he would come by with another box of candy to feed the nurses. And I became a big favorite with him. My cousin, Cy Seymour, saved my life. That's incredible. That's a, a lot of angels in your life uh, kind of swoop in when you need them. That, yeah. Because it was in the book, it talks about there was a boy that actually saw you in that tree. And they, they didn't realize two people were even in the car. Thankfully, he knew, and that's how they were able to find you. So little angels, yeah. little angels everywhere. Oh, this little boy who saw me in the tree. Yeah. His mother didn't see. Uh, I was wrapped around the tree backwards, and I was covered with all the green, the greenery. And the kid came and just yelled, Mommy, there's a man in the tree. And when she looked up, she saw me. And the ambulance had picked up my friend. They left. She called, and another ambulance came and got me out of the tree. Incredible. Absolutely. And then Jerry Lewis visited you while you were in the hospital. You got an autograph, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. I still got that picture. <laughs> <laughs> Probably worth a lot. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. To the right person. All right. So from there, you went back to comedy then? We went, we're back to the Catskills after you recovered and walked out of there? Yeah, I worked a little club in New York called The Living Room, and I wound up having a lifetime contract. I was just reminded before that, when I came back and I was in good shape, I was pumping iron, which I love working out. I became a cop. I thought I could make a difference because I had encounters with the police. One time they dragged me in, they beat me up looking for a friend of mine. Uh, and I mean, they really, really went to town on me. And I swore if, if ever I could do anything, I would become a cop because I'm going to make a difference. I became a cop and knew immediately that I could not make a difference. They were set in their ways. It was the way they operated. That's the way it was going to stay. Well, I was still on the force. A friend of mine who was a fellow comic, a guy named Mickey Deems, his wife, uh, her name was Gertrude worked for Nat Hyken, who created the Bilko show and Car 54. She was a secretary, and she got me the audition. And I went and met with Nat Hyken, sat down. He looked at me, and he said, you're Ed Nicholson. I said, oh, no, no, I'm Hank Garrett. And he said, oh, 
just the kind of dummy I'm looking for. He said, Nicholson is the character I want you to play on the show Car 54, Where Are You? That's a great introduction. <laughs> and that opened up the world. Oh, my God. And now I'm the only one left from the show. You were pretty young at the time, though, when you were on the show, right? 19. You were probably the youngest at the time on the show. Oh, yeah. I was 19 years old when I got on the show. That, that must be surreal to kind of think back, being the only one left from that entire show, because it's, it's such a classic. There's so many recognizable names that were starring or came through that show. Fred Gwynn, Joey Ross, Al Lewis. Al Lewis was my partner on the show. And we argued and fought all the time. Half the cast of the Munsters was on that show. Right. In the book, you talk about how you auditioned for uh, a role there, and then they went a different direction. It could have been yes. a whole Car 54 Redux. <laughs> the Munsters. <Yeah. laughs> yes, I, was, uh, I thought I was going to wind up playing the uncle. And it's so funny because the scene was where Lily looks at me and it's, full moon and i start turning into a wolf man <laughs> and she says oh uncle please go upstairs and shave <laughs> and I go oh man that's your fight sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with hank garrett but we have to take a quick break and we're back with legendary guest hank garrett we're about to discuss american radio and television writer nat hyken talk to me more about nat hyken he was sort of a Ingenue, right? I mean, he was, I mean, he, he was, he died very young. He died right after, yeah. shortly after Car 54 went off the air, right? Not too long after. And then, uh, but he had done some classic, classic stuff. I mean, one of those cases where the short time your hair just shines so bright, but the comic genius of, of the writing and all that. Any, any stories you could share along those lines? Well, he was a heavy smoker, but he was brilliant. He would walk down onto the set. We shot in the Bronx. There was an old studio called Biograph Gold Medal Studio. We took over, and he would walk onto the set as we were shooting. And he'd just ask for a moment, and we'd stop shooting. And he would change the scene because of what he just saw. And it became probably one of the best scenes in the show. He was that quick-witted. And yet, very, very quiet man. Yeah, that's incredible. That's You can probably appreciate, too, being a comedian on stage, having that kind of 360 view where as the inputs are coming in, you can, you can output much faster in your creative element. Well, as a comic, you know, picking up a, a thread of one thing and just making a whole scene out of it, that was the genius of Nat Hyken. Wow. That is a talent. So it took 50 years to get car 54 on dvd it wasn't until like the late 80s that it was kind of resurgenced on nick at night is it because there were only 60 episodes was there just not enough because it didn't have the syndication that a lot of the other very popular shows and this one quality wise stands with the best of them yes we knew we were gonna have a long run but that hiking's health interfered there was no one else that could pick up where he left off he had that. He was an an incredible, incredible genius, comedy genius. He had written the Martha Ray show prior to Car Fifty Four, hysterically funny show. And when he created Car Fifty Four, so many people said, "You know what's funny about the police department?" He said, "I'll show you." 
he looked at us and the characters he selected were so outstanding. Oh, so outstanding. So what was it like? What was Fred Gwynn like or and Joey Ross? Fred was wonderful, very kind of quiet. We had some terrible experiences. Uh, he lost a baby while we were on location. Oh, man. Yeah, he, his child fell out of the, he had a, a nanny with the child. I don't know what she was doing, but the child fell out of the crib and rolled down a hill and fell into a pool of water. Oh, my God. Yes. We were all aghast. We just could not talk. And so we stopped shooting until Freddie got back. Boy. Mm, that's a rough, that's a rough, rough, rough one. At least he had his family and his Car 54 family. Oh, absolutely. The people on the show were so understanding. And we said, take as much time as that you need. We'll be here. And no one took a job doing something else. We were so such a solid family on Car 54. We waited. Freddie came back. We went back to work. Uh, yeah, it's, it's touching that it's just how it's nice how much support you guys you guys all gave him. So Car 54, now you're like, a everyone knows you now. Like if they didn't know you before, right? Now everyone knows Hank Garrett, right? <laughs> if they didn't know you as the wrestler, karate champion, or, or comedian in the Catskills, now you walk down the street and you're the Car 54 guy, right? <laughs> it's so funny, but it's like, where do I know you from? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much uh, interesting stuff, too. I, I did want to say Three Days of the Concord, Three Days of oh. the Condor, the fight with Robert Redford. I just I wanted to go out of my way to say how impressed I was. That you, you know, you watch something and you're like, oh, yeah, wow. And like to get your foot that high up <laughs> to knock off that mantle. I just when I watch that, I'm like, it's such an impressive fight scene. But that I was like, damn. <laughs> In fact. I'm talking to a gentleman about turning my book into a movie or a series. Now, the guy is an award-winning writer. And so he and I were talking. He said, okay, so uh, kind of business-like, matter-of-fact. He said, uh, what did you do in three days of the Condor? I said, well, I was the killer mailman. He said, you were the mailman? I said, yes. How did you do that kick where you took the mantle off the fireplace? I said, it's called a reverse heel kick. And he's, oh, my God, that's incredible. Now, he says, that's the best movie that's ever been done. My God, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he never stopped talking. And he said, how did you do that? I said, just did. <laughs> training. Right. You had, you had a huge wrestling and karate training. So after I learned that, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so you broke robert redford's nose during that <laughs> accidentally of course yeah, yeah you don't go out of your way to break robert redford robert redford's nose <laughs> he was a terrific guy a really nice good-hearted guy to give you an idea we were shooting a scene and this they're going to do a close-up of a hand picking up a pot of coffee there was a pot of coffee that was cooking and throw it in my face. So it's a tight close-up of my face, and here comes the coffee. Bob came out of his dressing room, and he said, uh, "Well, what, what, what are you shooting?" And he said, uh, "The co and he looked at the coffee, and he saw the smoke coming out of the pot. He said, "Wait a minute, you're not going to throw a hot coffee in Hank's face." 
And the guy, special effects guy, said, no, 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 uh, it, it's not really hot. It's a chemical diluted with mineral oil. He said, well, it's an acid. He said, wait a minute, acid? You're going to get it in his eyes? And he said to the director, he said, Sidney, Sidney Pollard, let me throw the coffee. And Sidney said, well, you're not even in the shot. It's a tight close-up of Hank's face. He said, then it's okay, but then they'll never see me. And he called me on the side. He said, Hank, I'm going to hit you waist high with the coffee. Just throw your hands up in front of your face as though that's where I hit you. And it worked. Then they found out, had they gotten that acid in my eyes, it would have blinded me. Ouch. Oh, do I repay Robert Gregford for saving my eyesight? Well, I break his nose. <laughs> well, Hollywood karma got you back when uh, then later O.J. Simpson clocked you and Kirk Douglas. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've gotten beat up by the best. <laughs> the best. So funny. The, the story you tell about uh, Sophia Loren and uh, uh, your first ex-wife, I guess. The, <laughs> uh, but it was worth it. If you could, so <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe worth it to you. <laughs> <laughs> For the story. It was <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. From a karate point of view, it's interesting. You got to spar with Elvis. Also a black belt. Oh, yeah. You've uh, crossed paths and worked with quite the list of people. Elvis was a terrific, terrific guy. What a gentleman. I had gotten a call. I was appearing at the Sands. Got a call from someone who said he was one of Elvis's people. And would I do Elvis the honor of sparring with him? And I said, you want me to do Elvis the honor? Well, all right. I'll give the kid a break. That's what I said. <laughs> and they rented a room, the ballroom, at the Sands. And here comes Elvis with his entourage. And I look at what he's wearing. It must have cost $25,000. The the pants, spangles, and beads. And, and, and I look, and one leg said Elvis, the other said Presley. I'm wearing my $1.95 outfit, you know, and I'm saying, Okay, I got my gi, which is torn to shreds because I've been fighting it for years. Elvis takes off the outer layer, and he's got his workout. Now, he comes to me, and he says, Sensei, calls me teacher. And I said to Elvis, Elvis, you don't refer to me as Sensei because you and I are both of equal rank. So he says, oh, okay, Sensei. Then he says to me, Sensei, can I ask a favor, please? I said, sure. He said, try not to hit me in my face because I've got a show to do tonight. I said, Elvis, don't hit me in my face because I, too, have a show to do tonight. He said, Sensei, if I hit you in the face, it would be an improvement. <laughs> Elvis could sing and make jokes. Boom. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Elvis, you know I'm going to kill you. You know I'm going to show you no mercy. I'm going to kill you. And we, we sparred, and he was very good. Oh, he was wonderful. And a gentleman at all times. Wow. Is it surreal when someone like Elvis is in your presence, and he's impressed that he's in your presence? Not that he shouldn't be, but you know what I mean. Like someone that you have such high regard for, and they're like in high regard of you. It's got to be like, whoa. <laughs> I truly, truly keep saying to myself, I'm going to wake up. Because this is a dream. Sophia Loren, 
Elvis. And I'm going, where? How? I'm from the streets of Harlem. I was a hoodlum. What am I doing with these incredible people? Wow. God is good. Oh. Such a life, Hank. (laughs) Anything you want to know. Oh, the jazz singer, Neil Diamond. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I played a cop. It's so funny that, boy, oh, boy, meeting it, meeting these people. And I say to myself, how? People that I grew up with are asking themselves as well, is this the guy that is from 111th Street living in a condemned building? Wow. To give you an idea of the kind of living, I was home. I came back from a wrestling tour. My mother didn't know that I was a pro wrestler living on a fifth floor walk-up. There was a fire on the second floor. Didn't know a thing about it. My mother sees the fire in ancient. She had, she was selling fruits and vegetables in this little stand in the public market. She ran out and they stopped her. And they said, where are you going? And she said, my baby's upstairs. She's running into the building. The fireman says, come on. Now he took her hand and they're running up the stairs. They knock on the door and they wake me up. I was 240 pounds. That's when I was wrestling and pumping iron. I also competed as a power lifter. The fireman weighed about 145 pounds and he's banging on the door and he says, what's going on? Who are you? I said, and he, I said, to him, that's my mom. He said, you're the baby? Because she keeps screaming, her baby's in here. And then she said to him, don't carry him. You'll hurt yourself. <laughs> our kids are always our babies, right? Oh, you know what? I did have one, one more question. Paris, the TV show Paris that you did with James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. Yes. I was co-starring with James. Oh, we were the hottest show on the air. It was the first show, television show that James had done. This is his first series. We had the world watching. And then it came to us. We would we were number one. And they said, we're going to have to move your show because there's another show called Trapper John not doing too well. So we're going to give him your space and move you Saturday night. It's opposite a new show called Heart to Heart, the number one show. They destroyed us. Mm. Had we stayed on the number one show on Thursday, we would still be on the air. In fact, the producer came, called me and sent me a telegram. I'm so sorry we moved you. Oh, please forgive us. We were canceled. Trapajon canceled. And Heart to Heart was the number one show for a few years. That's so maddening. It's so maddening to hear. Like, why didn't they just put you back then? They take the number one show and then, oh, you couldn't beat Heart to Heart. Well, in their defense, when they met, it was murder. No, but anyway, but the... But it just seems like they could have put you back. I mean, why did they just do something? They got you, James Earl Jones. I mean, it's like, come on. It's like, that's frustrating. It's frustrating when they, like good quality and things that people love and then they uh, they cancel it. But you tell a story about your son because uh, James Earl Jones was at the house and did Darth Vader to your son. <laughs> true, absolutely true story. We had a party for the cast. At my house, I had a big house, and everyone was there. James, everybody on the show. My son, my oldest son, was a little boy. He was in his room. Jimmy was famous for doing the voice of Darth Vader. He went to say hello to my son, and he saw my son had a Darth Vader helmet. 
James put it on. My son sat there and he did the voice. It's my son. Well, my, I look in my son's room and he's watching James and he's gone. His mouth is wide open. Next day, my son goes to school. I get a call from his teacher, Mr. Garrett. Yes, your son, Brandon, has a vivid imagination. What does he say? Well, he's downright lying to the other children. He said that Darth Vader was in his room last night. And I said, well, he was. And I heard click. (laughs) I love, did this woman not watch TV? Did she not know that Brandon's dad starred in the number one show with James Earl Jones? Come on. (laughs) Exactly. Come on. Who said the whole family is nuts? Oh, man. That's a great story to end on. I know I've kept you so so long. I Hank, thank you so much for spending all this time with me and sharing all these amazing stories. Can't get over it. Such an, an eventful life you have lived. And thank you for spending a little bit of it with me. Thank you. Thank you for lo- allowing me to share. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Stay well and God bless. All right, everyone. How amazing was Hank Garrett? Check out his memoir, Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight, full of amazing stories, some of which we touched on in this episode, but a lot more for you to dive into. If you love TV history, that book is for you. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free Hashtag Roundup app at the iTunes App Store or Google Play Store. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. The hashtag for this episode, hashtag TV cop problems. Of course, inspired by Hank Garrett's legendary role and sitcom Car 54, Where Are You? Hashtag TV cop problems. A game brought to us by Tag Assassin, a weekly game on hashtag Roundup. Tweet your own hashtag TV cop problems. Tag us at Jeff Duoskin Show on Twitter. We'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, here are some hashtag TV cop problems tweets to inspire you. Too many commercials. I know. How can you be expected to solve a crime if they keep cutting to a Tide commercial? People getting you confused with Police Academy movie cops. I mean, there should be a clear difference there. Having to solve crimes in 45 minutes. I mean, isn't life hard enough? Come on, give some of these TV cops a two-potter. All right, this is a great kickoff to hashtag TV cop problems. Almost every trip ends in a chase. Blue just isn't your color. That would be a horrible problem for a TV cop. Never time to finish your donuts. Ah, trying to find the baddest looking sunglasses. You need a good pair of sunglasses to be a TV cop. Drinking all that coffee during stakeouts. Definitely a hashtag TV cop problems. And our final hashtag TV cop problems tweet. Batman touching all the evidence. Oh, oh, what's a cop to do? All right. Well, these were some fun hashtag TV cop problems. All these tweeters were retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin show. Go show him some Twitter love. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. We've come to the end of another episode. Episode 186 has come to an end. I want to thank my very special guest, Hank Garrett. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me and I'll see you next time. So much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. 
If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.